Chapter 7 Henry stormed across the field to join the diggers. Redwolf wasn't the only one who watched him approach. Several other grade one boys monitored his progress, and top boy Frank watched too. Did Master Evans keep you back after class again? Frank asked quietly. Henry didn't reply. Instead, he shoved Red Wolf on both shoulders. It was your fault, he yelled. Red Wolf felt tears welling up, but he gulped down the sob that tried to burst from his chest. Henry drew close, carefully forming his words and spitting them into Red Wolf's ear. Next time, don't make a sound, you hear? And don't tell anyone or else. He leered and drew his index finger across Red Wolf's neck. The child didn't need to know the language to understand the threat. His knees buckled. That's enough, Henry, Frank said, sheltering Red Wolf with his body. Leave him alone. Don't make me report you again. Get to work. Henry snatched up a shovel and started attacking the soil. Red Wolf was shocked to see that Frank watched Henry with compassion. Red Wolf didn't understand why. He hated Henry. A warning whistle, not unlike a jay's strident call, pierced the air, and all the boys in the old pasture began digging with renewed vigor. Someone was coming. A man and a dog. Red Wolf looked up and his heart leapt into his throat. It was the man called Indian Agent. It all seemed so long ago now when the white man had ridden into the summer camp of the people. That was the day it had all started, he thought. The day the man had invaded his childhood and called him a horse thief. He was no longer the carefree boy who had walked with a chestnut gelding that sunny afternoon just a few moons ago. Since then, he had lost everything. He threw his weight behind the shovel and averted his head, hoping the white man would not recognize him. But the hound ambled straight toward him, tail wagging gently, a happy greeting on his face. Get over here, dog, the Indian agent yelled. The animal lowered his head, rounded his back, and with his tail between his legs, approached his master. He was rewarded for his obedience with a raised hand and a harsh voice. Don't you be getting friendly with the Indians. The dog sighed, flopped to the ground. I hear that my special friend is here at last, the man called out to no one in particular. Red Wolf froze like a frightened rabbit. Ah, there he is. The Indian agent loosely wrapped a meaty arm around Red Wolf's neck and rubbed his head in an amicable manner. Fear paralyzed the child. The man's powerful bicep tightened against his throat. Horse thief, he whispered, his breath rank against Red Wolf's cheek. I said we would meet again, did I not? Red Wolf could barely breathe, and the Algonquian words stabbed at his heart like a hunting knife. Then, as suddenly as it had started, it was over. The man released him and turned on his heels and walked away. Dog, he yelled. Red Wolf gasped and realized that he was trembling. The dog dragged himself up and slunk after his owner. As the sun changed its angle in the sky, Red Wolf's hand started to blister, and then the blisters broke and oozed. You'd better go to the infirmary, Top Boy Frank said. Firmer me? Red Wolf questioned, a voice spoke in the language of the people. I'll take you. Red Wolf looked around and smiled at Turtle, following him to the school building. A young woman in a white apron greeted the boys. Hello, she said, her voice light and warm. What can I do for you? Turtle held out Red Wolf's hands. The nurse made sympathetic noises and turned to get cotton and alcohol to clean the wounds. What have you been doing, she asked. Digging the old pasture, Turtle replied. That's a man's job, she said, shaking her head. This will hurt a bit, I'm afraid. 
Red Wolf winced and tried to pull his hand away, but she held it firmly. We have to make sure it's clean. She turned to Turtle. Bring a biscuit for the wounded farmer and take one for yourself. Before the boys had taken more than one bite, brisk footsteps were heard echoing down the corridor, getting louder and closer. Swallow fast, whispered the nurse. Mother Hall appeared at the door just as the boys gulped down the biscuits. Her small, critical eyes appraised both boys before settling on Turtle. There's nothing wrong with you, boy. Get back to work. Turtle silently obeyed. She then examined Red Wolf's palms. Why are you here wasting time for just a few blisters? Outside, go. I'd like him to stay another moment while I bandage his hands, the nurse said. Bandages, Mother Hall shrieked. We can't be wasting good bandages on such trivial things. He needs to get back out there and start toughening up those hands. Work will harden them in no time. She grabbed Red Wolf by the scuff of his coverall and lifted him to the tips of his big leather boots. With years of experience behind her, she steered him out of the doorway and into the corridor, releasing him with a firm shove. Red Wolf stumbled away from her as fast as he could, but stopped dead in his tracks when her high-pitched voice shrieked. What he now understood was his new name. 366, she yelled, reading the numbers on the back of his coverall and pointing to the wooden floor. Look at this mess. Get back here and clean it up. Red Wolf looked where she pointed and saw fresh earth that had fallen from his boots. We don't wear farm boots in school, Mother Hall ordered, rolling her eyes. Take them off immediately. The nurse stood behind Mother Hall and mind taking the boots off. Red Wolf sat on the floor and tried to yank the uncomfortable things from his feet, forgetting that first he had to untie the laces. Knowing that the rawhide strips would soon be whizzing through the air and cutting painfully into some part of his body, he tugged at the laces, but his palms were slippery with sweat and salt was stinging the raw flesh. Mother Hall turned to the nurse. Oh, Lord, he still don't know how to untie his laces. Don't worry, Mother Hall, I'll help him with his boots, the nurse said, squatting beside Red Wolf and unraveling the bows, and then I'll make sure he sweeps the floor. <sighs> Mother Hall turned her attention back to the infirmary. Who's this? she asked, looking at a gaunt child who lay motionless under the clean white sheets. Three, five, nine, the nurse answered. Mother Hall shook the boy. There was no response. What's wrong with him? He's not eating or drinking, the nurse said. But the wire snags look clean. They're not infected. Com comprehension lit the older woman's eyes. Wire snags? He's the boy who tried to climb the fence? Yes, he got hooked on the barbed wire. He's malingering, using the caning as an excuse to get out of work. The nurse sighed. I don't think so. In my opinion, he's homesick and heartsick. That's nonsense, the house mother said. Indians don't have emotions like we do. He's just shirking. If he's not eating and drinking, force feed him. Red Wolf's first day finally drew to a close. His legs were wobbly with fatigue. He wanted to clamber into bed fully clothed, but the fear of punishment forced him to stay upright long enough to change into his nightgown. However, by the time the boys chanted, now I lay me down to sleep, Red Wolf was dead to the world. Mother Hall watched him. He lay on his back, his chest rising and falling under the blanket. She knew she should wake him and make him kneel at the side of his bed to recite the prayer. Father Thomas would expect that of her. But she looked at the child's relaxed face and felt a tug of sympathy. She decided that prayers weren't that important anyway. At least the boy had folded his clothes and put them away before falling asleep. Red Wolf 
walked on the beach, a clear lake, where he had grown up. Darkness was falling, but he could still make out the bluffs and trees that sheltered the beach from the strong north wind, and he could see the ridge where the wolves sometimes howled. He snuggled between his grandfather and his grandmother, their furs draped over his shoulders, his sleepy eyes watching the orange-blue tongues of fire lick the embers. He who whistles and the other hunters sat around the big drum. With powerful forearms, the men pounded their sticks against the skin, their high-pitched voices throbbing in time with the rhythm. The women danced around the men in a circle, the old ones shuffling in the gravelly sand, the younger ones pointing their toes and lifting their feet in time to the strong heartbeat of the drum. Star Woman laughed and copied her younger sister, who had broken loose with a spinning dance that took her on a path outside the circle of more stately women. Suddenly, he who whistles, piercing voice, soared above the drumbeat. Star Woman danced over to her husband and stood beside him, lending her support and spiritual power to his voice. This was the way of the people, and Red Wolf knew that it was his way too. He who whistles song gave thanks to Creator and to the four-legged that had given their lives in order that the lives of the people would be sustained. He gave thanks to Mother Earth for providing yet again, enabling them to survive another long, hard winter, and for the upcoming bounty of summer that would allow them to fill their baskets and prepare for another season of hardship. This, too, was in the Anishinaabe way. Red Wolf followed the bright sparks that rode a distance on the wind, he felt something warm inside his chest. It wasn't just the fire or the furs. He glanced up at the ridge and saw them, the wolves. He listened to their howl and his heart was filled with joy. A bell clanged and Red Wolf knew something was wrong. Bells did not clang on the beach at Clear Lake. He looked at the sparks from the fire and watched them get snuffed into blackness. He awoke. He could have wept. Chapter eight. Other than a word here or there, the only time that Red Wolf and Turtle could talk was when they were both assigned to Frank's work crew. Whenever the farm manager was out of earshot, top boy Frank ignored the rules of silence. Even so, Turtle was cautious. He was a year older than Red Wolf and knew that having friends was not allowed, that they would be punished and separated. But between furtive glances, he answered Red Wolf's questions and explained the meaning of words and phrases. He taught Red Wolf how to lower his eyes and say with the right degree of contriteness, I sorry, mother, I bad Indian, or please forgive my filthy savage. Sometimes these supplications averted a caning. At first, the two boys communicated in the language of the people, and then a mix of English and Anishinaabian, until, finally, they spoke mostly in English. The questions arose in Red Wolf's mind that he couldn't ask his friend in either language, questions that were too difficult to speak aloud, such as why his parents had left him at the school, why they didn't come to take him home, why they didn't want him anymore. He wondered if it was because he was a dirty savage and a good-for-nothing Indian. Red Wolf thought about the wrinkle-faced infant who had arrived in the wigwam just before the family had moved to the reserve, just before his father had left him here at the school. The baby had demanded so much of his mother's time, and he remembered being mad at both Star Woman and the noisy baby because they were so engrossed by one another. He wondered if his mother had sent him away because he was angry or because she loved the new baby more than him. He kept these thoughts to himself. But one afternoon, when the two boys were bagging corn cobs, one of Red Wolf's unspeakable questions came flying out of his mouth, unbidden. Do you ever stop missing your mother and father? Turtle sighed. No. 
A sob heaved from Mudwolf's chest. He couldn't contain it. Brimming tears stung his eyes, and he thought his heart was breaking. Turtle's voice quivered. My sister is here, too. Redwolf pushed his knuckles into his eyelids, forcing back the tide of tears. Girls? Here? Where? He said, smearing dirt over his contorted face. On the other side. Redwolf frowned. Don't you know? Turtle continued. There's a line right through the middle of the school. Upstairs it's a wall, but downstairs it's a door. Just past Father Thomas's office. The girls stay on one side, and the boys stay on the other. Redwolf was disbelieving. I've never seen any girls. Where are they now? Don't they have to work? They don't work on the farm. They work in the laundry. Redwolf's brow furrowed. Mother Hall doesn't wash her sheets and clothes. The girls do, Turtle said. Where do they eat? Redwolf asked, wondering how he had lived in the building for all these weeks without seeing a single girl. I don't know, Turtle said. But if your sister is here, why can't you see her? They won't let me. Red Wolf was perplexed, but Turtle raised his voice. I don't know why not. They just don't, they just won't let me. But I'm going over the other side one day, and I'm going to find her, and I don't care what they do to me. Red Wolf continued bagging cobs in silence. Do we ever get to eat any of us? He eventually asked. No. It goes to a place called Market. The teachers get some, I think, but not us. Checking on the whereabouts of the farm manager, Turtle peeled back the green leaves from an ear of corn and sank his teeth into the yellow cob. You take what you can when you can. A kernel flew from his mouth along with the words. Redwell followed Turtle's example and chomped into a cob, the raw kernels tasting sweet and starchy. Suddenly another question came unbidden. What does savage mean? Turtle didn't reply until he had nibbled every trace of yellow from the cob and was busy picking corn from his teeth. It's what we are, he said. Someone sounded a warning, a good imitation of a jay's call. The Indian agent and his dog were walking across the field. The two boys pushed the gnawed cobs deep into the sacks and headed toward the wagon. The dog once again sought out Red Wolf. The child smiled as he stroked the soft brown coat, unfortunately exposing a telltale piece of yellow corn still caught between his front teeth. Horse thief, shouted the Indian agent, grabbing Red Wolf's jaw and parting his lips to reveal the evidence. Or should I say corn thief? Once a thief? Always a thief is what I say. Here's a lesson I promised you about property. Everything is ours and nothing is yours. You own nothing. You have nothing. You are nothing. Do you understand? I tried to warn you. I tried to spare you the pain of punishment. But I see that you didn't heed my friendly advice. That was a mistake, boy. And now you've exhausted my generosity and my goodwill. Mr. Hall has a special place to put bad boys like you. Let's go. Red Wolf curled up and watched the sky through the narrow cracks between the rough facade boards. The crate was aptly named, having started life as a packing crate. Twenty years earlier, it had brought all of Mother Hall's worldly possessions across the sea from England. Her bed linens and clothes, some dishes, pans, and trinkets. There was barely enough space for a small boy to turn around. And if he had stood upright, he would have hit his head on the ceiling. Everything in his body yelled, move, run, get away, be free. But he was trapped like an animal in a cage. Even more than the ache in his cramped limbs, Red Wolf ached for his mother. Tears came just at the thought of her. He rocked back and forth, clutching his knees to his chest, convulsive sobs heaving from his chest. He was totally alone, utterly abandoned. 
Someone pushed a cup of water and a chunk of bread through a small flap. A boy whispered. Red Wolf stopped crying and listened. He didn't understand the words, but the voice was kind, and Red Wolf thought the boy was saying something encouraging. Stay with me, please, Red Wolf begged in Anishinaabwean, his voice small and faltering. But the boy went away, and Red Wolf was alone again. He held the bread on his lap, but he couldn't eat. He wasn't hungry. He closed his eyes and dozed. The line between memory and dream faded, taking him back to the summer camp of the people. He who whistles was teaching him, finding lessons in the most unlikely places. Look well and the story will tell itself, he advised, studying two pairs of entangled antlers that pointed skyward. Two moose fought here for the right to father the next generation. Their antlers became entangled and one of them died from a broken neck. See? The other could have died slowly from thirst, but I think not. Look at Crooked Ear. The young wolf was whining softly while snuffling his nose deep into the ground. I think that wolves found this trapped moose and they ended his life swiftly. Crooked Ear could smell them. Perhaps they were part of his family. And look at these tiny teeth marks on the bones. A mouse has gnawed here. The strong bones of the moose have passed even into the frail body of a mouse. The mouse will be eaten by an owl or hawk, or maybe even a wolf. And eventually the bleached bones that remain here will become part of the earth, enriching it and allowing it to grow grass that another generation of grazing animals will feed from. Everything in death returns to give life to others. A bird has even made a nest here in the crook of the antlers. Half asleep and half awake, Red Wolf watched strands of hair unravel from the abandoned nest and flutter in the breeze. The hair was long and dark like his mother's. He wondered if it had been hers. He opened his eyes and the crate closed in on him again. He was a prisoner. Fresh tears stung his sore eyes. He wondered if Crooked Ear had indeed been able to smell his family in the soil around the moose antlers. He hoped so. He wished that he had something to snuffle, something that would give him the faintest trace of his mother. He had nothing. The light started to fade, and a deer mouse darted through the gap between the boards. It paused, sat back on its haunches, and raised one dainty forepaw. Its delicate ears trembled, and its long whiskers twitched, as though it was weighing the scent of danger against the aroma of food. Red Wolf breathed softly. The mouse scurried over his boot and up his leg. It gnawed anxiously at the crust of bread. Red Wolf longed to touch it, to stroke its velvety coat, to feel its warmth. But when he gingerly stretched out a hand, the mouse scampered away. Reaching inside his coverall and deep into his trouser pocket, his fingers rubbed the wolf pendant. In a moment of inspiration, he took the lace from his left boot, threaded it through the hole in the pendant, and tied it around his neck. With the pendant tucked carefully inside his clothing and nestled against his chest, he felt better. Silently, he prayed, Brother Wolf, help me get away from here. But his prayer was answered by feelings of home that were almost too much for him to bear. As darkness fell, cold seeped into his bones. He tucked himself into a ball, warming his hands under his armpits. Far off in the distance, he heard the lonely howl of a wolf. He threw back his head, and as loudly as he dared, he howled a reply. Chapter 9 by the end of the first term, Red Wolf had made a transition in language. Instead of translating English to Anishinaabwein in his head, he now thought in English. He was stunned when he woke up one morning and realized that his dream had even been in English. 
he understood most of the instructions he was given throughout the day and many of the words in the lessons. Although the concepts were confusing, especially in the religious studies classes, and due to the code of silence that was enforced for so much of the day, he had limited his opportunity to practice speaking the new language. It was a school tradition that the grade one class performed the pageant on Christmas Eve. Redwolf didn't understand what it was all about. Weeks ahead of time, Master Evans picked children to play the different roles. He chose the smallest boy in the class to be Mary. The boy was dressed in a blue robe and wore a sheet draped over his head, tied with a cord so it flowed over his shoulders and back. Master Evans announced that the biggest boy in the class would play the part of Joseph, but he changed his mind when he realized that Henry was the biggest boy. He gave the Joseph costume to the second biggest boy instead. Henry was not in the play, at least not dressed up as an actor. He had a special job as Master Evans' assistant, working behind the scenes. The three best boys in the class were selected as wise men. Their outfits were colorful and grand with trailing cloaks, sparkling necklaces, and shiny crowns covered in glass beads. Redwolf wished he were a wise man. He couldn't stop wondering what gifts were inside the carved wooden boxes that they carried. His own robe was simple and dull, coarse and itchy, and loosely tied at the waist with twine, but his headband reminded him of those worn by the people, and he went barefoot. felt nice compared to the school uniform. On the evening of the big show, the children went to the barn. A silver star had been hung from the roof on a long piece of wire, and it glittered in the light from the lanterns. One of the cow stalls had been thoroughly cleaned and fresh straw strewn over the stone floor. A feed trough, so new you could smell the pine, was positioned in the middle of the stall, and a white baby doll wrapped in a shawl lay in the trough on an overflowing bed of hay. The curious cows in the neighboring stalls poked their heads over the dividing wall. Red Wolf was mesmerized. One, called Jersey, had a coat the color of the forest floor in autumn. Big brown eyes, large furry ears, and a wet black nose. She reminded Red Wolf of a deer. He stifled a laugh when her long pink tongue reached out to lick her own nostrils. Red Wolf stuck out his own tongue and stretched upward, but it didn't go as far as his nose. One grade at a time, the children came to the barn to see the show. Mary in the blue robe sat on a stool behind the feed trough and obeyed Master Evans' directions to look down lovingly at the doll in the hay. Joseph stood next to the boy in blue and gently rested a hand on his shoulder. In response to Master Evans' cue, Red Wolf led the shepherds excitedly down the barn aisle and through the open door of the stall. Each knelt at the feed trough and peered adoringly into the face of the doll, then regrouped on the right side of Joseph. And finally, the three wise men marched regally down the barn aisle and bowed respectfully in front of the feed trough. They put their gifts worshipfully on the ground, and then they stood on the left side of Joseph in what Master Evans called a balance stage. The actors stood quietly, while all the children in the grade had the opportunity to look through the stall door at the scene or peer over the wall if they were tall enough. Red Wolf felt uncomfortable with everyone staring at him. Then everyone sang the song that the entire school had spent weeks learning. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The silver star twinkled and twirled in the moving air right above the feed troughs. The boy in the blue robe picked up the doll and rocked it in his arms. The shepherds and wise men stared at the doll with smiles pasted on their faces. And at the end of the song, Father Thomas beamed and the teacher ushered his class back to the school building, humming as he went. The wise men picked up their gift boxes and retreated to the far end of the barn, followed by the shepherds, where they all waited the arrival of the next grade. It wasn't until the following Christmas 
when Red Wolf watched another grade one's performance of the identical pageant that he realized Mary was a girl's name and that the boy in blue was supposed to be the mother of Jesus and the boxes that the wise men carried were empty.